If I told you that today's guest appeared in the original West End productions of Hair, Jesus Christ Superstar, and Grease, perhaps only diehard musical fans might know of whom I'm speaking. But when I also tell you that she created the roles of Evita, Grizabella in Cats, and Florence in Chess, in addition to appearing in both London and on Broadway in Sunset Boulevard and The King and I, I suspect most any musical buff will know who's in the studio with me. Welcome to the American Theatre Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing, and I'm honored to meet the First Lady of London's Musical Theatre, Elaine Page. Hello, Howard. Now, I'm amused that you're coming here directly from having taped your own (laughs) weekly radio program. Elaine Page on Sunday. That's right. Which you've been doing for six years now? Six years. So about about the same time. So what is it like? We're going to talk all about your career as a performer, but what is it like as a performer when you sit down and have a conversation with other artists because you have performers, composers, etc.? Well, it's been the most extraordinary learning curve, really, for me. I'm not, I was not, anyway, six years ago, a broadcaster. Uh, As you rightly say, my home and my love is theatre. That's what I know about. But the BBC approached me and asked me if I would like to host my own radio show, and uh, I was intrigued as to what this could possibly be about. And I had discussions with them, and... uh, because musical theatre is something that I know a little bit about, uh, we felt that that was probably the genre that the show should uh, should take. That should be the, the work that we would cover, uh, musical theatre and film music only. And so that is how the show was born, and that's how it began six years ago. And I thought, really, that um, I was you know, going to be hosting this show for the die-hard fans of musical theatre, uh, a rather, you know, a, a small group of people. And instead of which, the show kind of took off of its own volition, really, and became this... Uh, it snowballed and became rather successful, much to my amazement. And um, and then, so as the show has progressed and moved on... Um, I decided that it might be fun to do some interviews and, uh, and have a bash at doing that. Not something that I would have ever thought I would have been capable of doing. Although I like to talk a lot, I don't know that I'm quite so, uh, uh, you know, sure of myself in, in asking the right questions of other people. But I've learned that actually it's really just about having a conversation, isn't it? It is, but the, from the perspective of an artist, having a conversation with another artist, do you find that you, even with all your experience, are learning things from talking to these other people? Oh, yes, indeed. I'm finding out all about them and what makes them tick. And the interesting thing about talking to other artists, um, I've been able to garner some fantastic interviewees, um, I think probably because I am an artist. And in some respect, I think they feel, (laughs) I don't know, foolishly or not. No, no, I'm kidding. They feel they can trust me and they also feel that I have an understanding of what it is to be an artist and, and... and the things that one might have hopes and fears about from an artist's point of view. So there is that element of understanding, a mutual uh, mutual understanding from on both sides. And I have found that that has been uh, something very beneficial to me as an interviewer and to them as an interviewee because we both are coming from the same standpoint, if you like. 
as I was preparing to talk to you, I discovered that, in fact, international audiences, not just English audiences, can listen to the programs on the BBC website. So that's absolutely right. Um, but one of the things that, that I came to understand is that the show is really a mix. You play, there's a lot of music played as well as conversation for Oh, you. indeed. The, the show started out as a music program. I was really hosting a, a show that uh, dealt with musical theatre and film music only. That's how it began. It was about music rather than conversation. But everything evolves, as you know, and probably, I don't know, with this show uh, as well, although you started out particularly as a, a show that interviews people. My show was not. That was not how we began. But it has evolved into that. And I don't do that every week. I mean, uh, I had a spate of interviewing the great and the good from the world of music and film, um, actors, writers, composers, directors, the front of house uh, manager, the stage doorkeeper, the elects guy up on the, on the spots. I wanted the listener to be able to have an understanding and an in-depth kind of view from all these different points of view of people that worked in the theatre. And, again, composers, the difference between writing for film, music for film, uh, as opposed to music in theatre. So I was trying to give the listener, uh, you know, a, a broad view of what it is to be part of this wonderful uh, industry that we are involved in. Well, the music mix is pretty eclectic, and I wonder how much do you get involved in actually choosing the selections every week? Because... You certainly have other things on your plate than just just putting together that show every week. That's true. And, of course, uh, there are others that do the research and uh, and choose some of the music. But uh, equally, it is my show. My name is attached to it. So I want the show to reflect who I am as a person. Um, so I like to have quite an eclectic mix, as you've just pointed out, uh, musically speaking. So we dip into uh, traditional musical theatre from yesteryear and equally I like to play the new and the modern uh, works that are, are coming up at the moment uh, and young new performers young new writers if I can find any <laughs> of any consequence um, no no I say that slightly tongue in cheek but you know what I mean um, as well as of course the American Broadway musical which of course is, is the 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 very thing, the substance of of uh, the great musicals like My Fair Lady, Carousel, um, Gypsy, these great stalwarts of musical theatre. We have to and want to play those and the audience want to hear them too. But I like it to be a bit of a mix and, um, and that's what I try to achieve. I think there's all music in musical theatre and film is, uh, is something that uh, I like. You know, my own personal taste is quite eclectic as well. Since most any musical theater program anywhere in the world would regularly be playing tracks featuring Elaine Page, I'm wondering what's the policy for you on playing your own songs? Sadly, <laughs> the BBC, uh, their policy is that as a host of a program, you do not play or, or uh, um, advertise your own wares, as it were. So therefore, I don't play any of my own music, um, unless, of course, somebody has 
specifically written in, and they, indeed they do, I'm glad to say, <laughs> the odd one or two, um, write in and request to hear something from musical theatre that I would have recorded uh, from one of the, sh- you know, the cast albums that I've been involved with over the years, uh, the various shows that I've been involved with. But uh, generally speaking, we're not meant to. And um, since my show is not always live, um, you know, and, and also there's a policy with the BBC now, it's, it's really rather boring I think that uh, this thing called compliance and it's all come about through um, Jonathan Ross had a bit of a hiccup with the BBC and uh, and so this thing called compliance has come in and we all have to adhere to all these rules and regulations which in many ways I feel is a shame because it's it sort of stifles the natural uh, flow of, of things really. Well, today, no compliance, and it's Marvelous. all about Elaine Page. So the next question is, you're spending a sustained period here in New York. You're yes. recording some of your shows, I know. But um, the main purpose is to record an album. Is is the album done? Because I think I'd read about nearly, that. Nearly, nearly. We're nearly there. I've, I came over in the summer. I've, I will have been here about three months by the time I... Uh, leave sadly too soon i have to say but um i the main purpose for coming was to uh, to make this new album with the great legend phil ramone the producer phil ramone somebody that i've wanted to work with for well over 20 years i think um He's worked with practically everybody of any note uh, in the music industry. Frank Sinatra, um, oh, I don't know, you know, the list is absolutely... Billy Joel, Billy I know, Joel, some of those Tony albums. Bennett, And of course, Paul Simon, gave his name to the Liza. Ramones. Yes. <laughs> I mean, Whether ab- he liked it or not. Well, <laughs> exactly. I mean, this man, as we say, is a great legend and uh, have, I've always wanted to work with him. And I came up with this idea of a... Um, an album called Elaine Page and Friends, or anyway, that's the working title at the moment. And so this, after conversations, uh, turned into the idea of a duets album, which indeed it has become. And uh, I'm thrilled to say that um, I've been able to work with some of my idols, people that I admired and, and whose music I've grown up with, like Dionne Warwick and Paul Anker and Neil Diamond and Johnny Mathis and uh, and so on. And uh, they are just a handful of the great, uh, the great artists that, as I say, their music has been part of my entire life. So it's been an absolute thrill for me to, to be able to sing with my idols and, uh, and indeed to, to actually meet them it's just been you know i became like the 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 open mouth fan (laughs) when meeting them it is an interesting mix because you certainly didn't grow up listening to leanne rhymes because leanne rhymes if she was listening to show tunes would have grown up listening to you um and certainly john barrowman who is indeed a friend was your discovery then you have people like anka and manilo neil sadaka you know who are who certainly many of us grew up listening to had you done this kind of an album in England with English cohorts already or, you know, what was it that compelled you to, to do really all of these Americans with the exception of, interestingly enough, Sinead O'Connor? Well, Sinead O'Connor uh, is someone that I uh, have admired uh, since that first big hit of hers. I love her voice. I love, uh, I love the fact that this woman is... Uh, controversial, I suppose. Um, 
And uh, there's an original track, only one on this album, written by Tim Rice and Gary Barlow. It's called It's Only Life. And it's quite a, a dark song, a sort of Eastern European flavor to it. Um, it's sort of Rachmaninoff, you know, in, in its sort of tone, I suppose. And I thought that she would uh, do a great job on it uh, and, and sing, you know, it would suit her, her voice. So, uh, but certainly Leanne Rhymes is someone you're right. I, I mean, she's young and uh, has achieved so much at such a tender age. Um, but, you know, when you're doing a duets album, you kind of write down lists of who your ideals would be. And it's quite an achievement to, to, uh, to harness these people. You know, everybody, artists have their own life and very busy diaries. So to, I'm amazed anybody has been free to be able to sing with me on it at all, in fact. But uh, as I say, but Tim Rice and Gary Barlow, that's the only, um, single you know new uh, original track all the rest are covers and the songs are come from my early life and the songs that i grew up with things like um making up is hard to do um breaking up is uh, hard break, to do. no not, you know not breaking up is hard to do. that's, that's oh. neil no 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 i mean make it with you ah. um there's chicago songs there's bread songs on there um hmm. it's hard for me to remember now I'm, i've been so absorbed in it and other things today i can't actually list well them for we, you, won't, but we won't make you list but i was curious it's not it's not a show tune album no to deliberately sure. so it's, it's pop I'm, tunes. I'm a bit weary to be honest of uh you know this year i and last year actually and this year i'm celebrating for my 40th anniversary in in uh, the theater and uh I, I you know it's pretty frightening to to <laughs> sit here and admit that um and of course theater is and has been that's my root my roots but um and i've been singing this uh, theater show which is out on dvd at the moment all over the world actually funnily enough everywhere but here um and so i wanted to s- throw it off for a moment and um and this album has uh, afforded me that possibility well Instead of throwing it off, let's put it back on for the rest of the conversation and go back to how you got your start uh, in theater. You did not come from a theatrical family. No, not really. My, although my father was a drummer in an amateur sense, he had a band and his own band called the Arcadians. And every Friday and Saturday night, my father would not be at home at all. He'd be out gigging. And uh, so that was very much part of my upbringing, music, and but mainly big band type music and Ella Fitzgerald and Frank Sinatra. Those were my early uh, uh, musical influences. Um, so no, they were not, uh, it was not a, a theatrical background, but I think my father had the war not come along and sort of gotten in the way of life as, as it did with many people, of course. I think he may have wanted to have been a professional musician, but the war happened and so he didn't achieve that. So when he realized that I clearly had a bent for, for singing and, um, and musical theater, uh, which became evident during my school days, really, end-of-term productions, like a lot of young people, I think. Here, a lot of young kids go to summer camp and that kind of thing, and that's where they discover whether they really have a talent and want to be part of theatre or music in this country. Um, The same at home. 
is, is this in, in the way of, of schooling. And um, that's how I first realised and knew that I loved to play act and I loved artistic things much more than academia. So that's how it all began. And, and then my father was the one that said to me, asked me if I wanted to go to, uh, to uh, theatre school. And I was, you know, because I came from a suburban background. These were not things that we did, you know. You'd leave school and go work in a shop. Or... Well, it's actually very rare. I mean, I've heard a lot of people's stories, as have you. Mostly you hear about the mothers saying, okay, and the fathers, not so sure. So, But it was your father. Well, I think it was my father, as I said, because of his own interest in music. And... Uh, and, of course, I jumped at the idea and thought, wow, how this would be wonderful. I could just spend all day doing it, right. which, but of course, is what I did. At the time, as I understand it, in England, there weren't places to go that were specifically musical theatre training No, very few. I mean, all. there was RADA, of course, mm-hmm. which, of course, was the only one we'd eat heard of and indeed uh, we did approach RADA but uh, you have to remember I was 16 years old and just about to have to make the decision to leave school and either go out to work Uh, university was not going to be on the cards for me it was not something that I uh, particularly was interested in anyway and uh, and we did indeed approach RADA but of course they rightly said well she's far too young you know tell her to go away and live a bit of life and um, get some life experience and come back when she's 18 well, I didn't want to wait till I was 18. I was, you know, hot to trot and passionate and wanted to bury my, my head in, in the, the uh, art of theatre. So we had heard of um, a theatre school called the Ada Foster Academy. And uh, so I auditioned there and, and was accepted. Now, what was interesting to read about that academy is that it was both an academy and an agency. Yes, an oddity, right? Well, and it was a school. I mean, that was the thing. There were kids from little children from five years old, right the way through up to 16 years old. Then they would have to take their exams and so on. And then there was a student's course, which is, of course, the one that I took uh, from the age of 16 to to 19. Uh, And attached to this school was an agency primarily so that children there would uh, get the chance to to know what it was like to work in the professional world of of the arts so i want to make try to get the chronology right but you were very young when you got what would seem to be your your what could have been your professional break which was there was a tour of Roar of the Grease Paint, Smell of the Crowd, pre-West End. That's right. right. It was the original show, uh, of course, written by Anthony Newley and Leslie Brickus. And Norman Wisdom was a big star in England, and he was playing the leading role that I believe Anthony Newley eventually played here. Um, And it was there the successor to Stop the World I Want to Get Off. And I played an urchin, and that was my very first professional engagement. And you're absolutely right, it was a tour, an out-of-town tour, because, as we know, in those days, uh, we would try things out, out of town. Nothing ever opened bang on on Broadway as you do now today and and likewise in the West End. That was just unheard of. You always played out of town. And so we did this sort of tour of the United Kingdom, um, fixing the show and working on it, making alterations and changes uh, with the hope of coming into the West End. But there was another show at the same time doing exactly the same as we were doing called Maggie May. I don't know if you know of that show. And, uh, And 
unfortunately, they came in and we were given our notice in Manchester at the Palace Theatre. I'll never forget it as long as I live. And I remember crying at the idea that, oh, dear, it was all over. And, it, and I thought that was going to be the end of everything. <laughs> now, How naive. Well, as, as you wrote in your book Memories, which which certainly was, was useful for me in preparing for this, um, you, you had a period of playing urchins. Yes, and, of course. I, I, that even, was a, I had a handle on urchins, definitely. I don't normally Being talk a much... a short person. <laughs> <laughs> I don't normally talk much about film, but, but you know, it, it's worth mentioning that um, you reached the, the peak of urchindom, <laughs> if that's urchinism, <laughs> whatever the correct phrase is, um, because you, you can be spotted in the film of Oliver. Indeed. If you look very closely and don't blink, <laughs> you'll see me standing right in the front of, of, of the shot at the end of the, the number, Consider Yourself, between, I think, Jack Wilde and Oliver himself. Uh, it, yes, doing my uh, Consider Yourself uh, acting and singing with a long, long wig on. But, uh, yeah, very funny. But that you're right. That was um, the highlight of my uh, urchinism career actually <laughs> getting into that film certainly was a major event but it didn't send you off into the film world you certainly came back towards theater it seems pretty well, quickly I, I think theater is uh, really what what i know most about and you have to remember uh especially at that time and probably even now the the film business in in england is is uh you know, it's it's not something that is. It's not Hollywood. We don't have a uh, a film business in the same way that you do here. Knowing your reputation, certainly Evita, um, Chess, King and I, Piaf, Cats. I was stunned to find that your West End debut was Hair. I know. Pretty frightening. Forty years ago. <laughs> Um, you joined the company. You were not a member of the original cast, but you joined the original production. Well, I joined the company literally about five days after the opening night oh. because a young lady by the name of Cindy Ann Lee, I think her name was, who was in the tribe of, of the show, uh, decided after uh, the rehearsal period and, and being in the show for literally three or four performances, decided uh, that it was not for her and she left. And apparently I was at the top of the the list of callbacks if there should be anything that should occur in such a way. And uh, and I got the phone call saying, would you, would you like to join the company? So it was something that happened really rather quickly. Um, immediately, I mean, hmm. even within the first week of, of the show opening. But sadly for me, I had missed out on all of that wonderful rehearsal period, which is always my favourite time, really. It's pretty well chronicled that at least in the original American production, there were as many professional actors as there were people that they found not literally on the street, but people who were, let's say, not entirely versed in the professionalism of working in the theater. Um, was the tribe in London as unruly a lot as they were apparently over here? Or was it much more professional... I don't know. It didn't playing hippies. Yeah, yeah, I think it was, really. It didn't seem to me to be, you know, an unruly bunch, really. I mean, obviously, there were a couple of flakes in there. <laughs> but generally speaking, um, I think, you know, they were 
really rather quite professional people and they were all, you know, budding singers or actors or, you know, on the peripheral of the of the business. Some of them were in, more into rock music or folk music and had a band or something. So they were all young and young people that wanted to uh, to get on in the business, I think. They weren't really... I mean, there were a couple of them, you know, but basically it was a pretty together bunch of people, hmm. as, I, as I remember. It's interesting because Daniel Sullivan... Was it not here then? The director, Daniel Sullivan, who was on this program a couple of weeks ago, was the... Um, was a stage manager and assistant director on the production, and he said basically well, here. here and said that the the company was sufficiently unused to the rigors of eight shows a week that he basically had to restage the show every night based on who showed up. Oh. So it sounds like over there it was a production. People played their roles. For I think you, that's absolutely true, and you have yeah. to remember also that we, you know, with uh, that, that show and often uh, shows that are – you know, establish themselves here first, it usually can take a year before they make it to England. Mm-hmm. So then they've learned the the whys and wherefores of how to make it work. And uh, no, it was certainly, it was not, <laughs> it was not that crazy. Stylistically, in terms of what you'd been dreaming of performing in, was, was a rock musical, really, in some case, some ways, the really, truly the first rock musical, was this a style of music you'd really... I thought about it, singing or planned to sing? No, no, not at all. I don't know that I ever had a plan, to be honest. <laughs> I just uh, was enamoured with the, with, with the theatre. I just wanted to be part of it and, and to, you know, work. I, I didn't really have a, a great deal of choice, I think, when, when anyone is starting out. Um, I think you... you you know, you you take what's there and, and hope to just be working. I mean, that and I'm sure it's still the same today. There's so many people all out for the same show, the same part. I think just to get the be off of the job is something in itself. And uh, and I just wanted to be part of the theatre um, in any way, shape, or form that it would come. And of course, when. I auditioned for it originally and didn't get it. In fact, the reason I didn't get it, they they said to me, one of the reasons anyway, they told me, they said, oh, next time you come, Elaine, I mean, I must have auditioned about eight times. And then to be told I didn't get it, I was devastated because by then I'd heard the music, of course, from here, from the States. I loved the music. I mean, it was innovative, wasn't it, that show? And, uh, and it was... it. It, it took musical theatre in a completely and utterly different direction, a modern way. No tabs and, um, you know, all this slow motion and, and the unruliness of it and so on and so forth. And, and speaking about things that mattered to the young people of the day, something that doesn't happen enough, in my view, now in the writing of musical theatre. People aren't writing about what what is happening in our lives today. It's all revivals or jukebox musicals or whatever. Mm. At least that was saying something about what what the young people of the day wanted to speak about. Well, it's interesting to say that because if it's put in the category of rock musicals, you're right. Well, that's where we were at then. But then you ended up doing a couple more rock musicals, which were not topical in the sense of of the day because you did Jesus Christ Superstar, which ultimately was success all over the place, but you also did Rock Carmen. That's right. Well, rock was obviously, that was the musical idiom that we were as young people in, in the late 60s, early 70s, that was the, musically the, the way we were leaning, the way we were going. That was the, the interesting thing about it, that I was part of... Um, 
you know, a new wave of of musical theatre. This was where it was heading, and it was exciting and wonderful to be part of something that was new and fresh. Uh, Jesus Christ Superstar, I think, is one of Andrew Lloyd Webber's brilliant scores and i still get a buzz out of uh, of listening to it what's the buzz i mean what a what great i was score. gonna do that if you didn't <laughs> ah, i couldn't resist it but you know i mean a fantastic score and uh, i was again in the chorus of that uh, for well over a year never tired of listening to it and still play it on my radio show today it's a great great score um so you know and again dealing with the subject matter that uh, I think was something at that time again about religion and and uh, it, it was holding things up to be discussed things that had really until this point been swept under the carpet a bit and and as you know that show uh, it, it took a rough ride in terms of reviews I mean there were there was a big discussion about that that subject and that but that's what I about I've the been subject so, or whether it was appropriate to treat that's that what, subject well, that's in what that I mean, way yeah. appropriate to treat the subject in that way and and in the with the modern idiom that Tim Rice's lyrics uh, have always, you know, he's he's got that wonderful way of, mm. of uh, uh, turning things and, and that wonderful sort of street language. It, it was, uh, and again, that made it new and fresh and different. And so I feel very blessed that my time in musical theatre uh, was a time when everything was changing and moving forward. And just like today, I suspect young artists like Adina Menzel and Kristen Chenoweth and so on, I suspect they feel exactly the same about what they're doing with Wicked and the jukebox musicals. I happen not to feel the same way about it, but I'm sure they do. Each generation has their own style and moment, don't they? Mm-hmm. Well, I have to ask, although it's a footnote and we won't spend much time on it, just just say a few words about Rock Carmen. Oh, Rock Carmen. You want me to talk about that? Oh, well, Rock Carmen. Well, <laughs> I mean, it sort of says what it is. It's a rock exactly. version it was, of it Carmen. Was Carmen. But it um, obviously did not ride the crest of the popularity no, of rock no, musicals. No, it didn't. Uh, I I don't quite know why either, to be honest. It, I've always thought it was rather good. It was very well cast. Um, I played Michaela. Uh, we were playing at the Roundhouse uh, Theatre, which is sort of like equivalent to your off-Broadway situation. And um, But it, it sort of ran into trouble, I think, financially with producers and money and so on. The director decided he, he had enough and he left some way through the middle of it. And <laughs> So it had... It, had all those <laughs> difficulties with the with, on that side of the fence, if you like, not with the company so much, but uh, uh, and uh, but musically, I always thought it was quite interesting, but uh, perhaps it was just I don't know, just took things too far. They didn't, people weren't ready to accept opera in such a way. Well, I'm going to accelerate through a few shows. You did Greece in the West End. Mm-hmm. You went. You played Sandy, uh, joining that production. Then um, an original musical, Billy, based on Billy Liar, both the novel and the film. Uh, you did a revival of The Boyfriend. All of this, I, I'm jumping through quickly because I've got to get to the big guns. Um, Evita had originally been produced as... A concept album, That's right. as was typical for for Andrew and Tim in That's those days. Right. Um, Julie Covington played Evita on the album mm-hmm. and chose not to do the show. Apparently, so. So, <laughs> how Mad woman. did you? You know, did you? Had you already come to know 
Andrew and Tim because of being in the company of Superstar or they had no idea that you'd even been in Superstar? No, 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 no. I did not know them, of course, on a personal level at all from Superstar. But uh, clearly they had been... You know, they would have seen me in the show, although I didn't have anything much to do. I played one of the, you know, the, the do-up angels in it, so I had a moment. But um, I can remember quite clearly that I had been asked if I would uh, understudy uh, Mary Magdalene in Superstar, and I made a conscious decision not to do that. I turned the offer down uh, flat because I realised that... Um, you know, if I was ever really going to make it or get anywhere in in the in the theatre, I think if you get into the rut of understudying, as as useful as it can be early on, I think you have to come. There has to come a point when you don't do it because otherwise people don't regard you in any way. They think, oh, you know, she's an understudy, and that's how they view you. And it's interesting that in that case, you were in the show. You would have just added that tr- that additional work to to it. Wasn't that the case, or was? Was Sorry, it I don't subsequent understand. that you were already in the chorus of Superstar? I was, yes. And so, you know, they I'll, asked you to also understudy, yes. and you said, "No, I'll do yeah. the chorus, but no, I'm no, not I, no, I, I'll understudy. do what I'm doing, but I don't want to understudy." Hmm. I didn't. I'd already done that, you see, in Hair, right. and um, and learned a great deal. It's very valuable, but uh, I know I just didn't want to do it. I just thought I, I, don't, I don't know why. That, well, the reason I'm giving is really I just thought okay. I wouldn't be considered as a serious uh, artist if you understudy everything and. And although, of course, I wanted to be able to sing that wonderful song, I Don't Know How to Love Him. And indeed, in my concert uh, that I'm doing at the moment, I do sing that song because it is one of the most wonderful ballads that, are, that came out of those early uh, rock shows. Um, yeah. So... How did you get the part of So, no, they wouldn't have known me. That's right. Andrew, that's right. That's what you were asking me. Andrew and Tim would have probably realised I was in the show because I assume they would have had uh, enough interest to see who was coming and going out of the company of their show. Um, But other than that, I would not have known them. So... What did it do? Did you have to audition for multiple Evita? times for Evita? Absolutely. I think every show I've ever managed to get into, I've auditioned multiple times, hmm. usually around uh, seven or eight times, and nothing was any different with uh, Evita. That was a, a long, arduous process that uh, began and seemed to go on and on and on for months and months and months, uh, concluding with... Uh, I think there were three of us that were left on the list. An American uh, girl by the name of Bonnie Schoen was flown over to England um, for this final audition, and another young lady by the name of Verity Ann Meldrith, and my Meldrin and myself, and we were all. Um, shoved into this dressing room at the Palace Theatre in London and uh, one by one ushered out onto the stage and I can remember sitting there looking at my watch, checking the time of everybody that they both went out before me and seeing how long they got. (laughs) Then I went out and uh, did my final audition and uh, every time I went, I think I was asked to... I sang my own choice of song, which was Yesterday, uh, The Beatles' Yesterday, which I did chose to do as a dramatic uh, ballad, really, rather than as a pop song in the the manner that they had written it. Um, And... uh, 
And I think Andrew had asked me to sing Learn uh, Don't Cry For Me Argentina, which after the eighth time of, of singing, it became, you know, oh, not again, because it's a rather long song. <laughs> but um, anyway, and then one would have to be put through one's paces in terms of dance and movement. And, uh, and then, yeah, I mean, I was, I can't believe it still today. And as I write in the book, so many people were uh, up for that role. It was a coveted part worldwide. I mean, uh, Raquel Welsh, uh, you know, I mean, Faye Dunaway, Liza Minnelli, everyone, Shirley MacLaine. I mean, big, big names were up for this role. And, uh, of course, as I say, it was a truly coveted uh, part. And nobody could have been more surprised than me when I finally won that role. It really was truly, it changed my life. Well, you can answer a question that I've always been curious about. Here you have this show that's been done as a concept album. And to my recollection, and there are probably musical theater buffs who, who will scream when they hear me say this, the show was fairly complete in its writing as that album. That's it's right. It's not that the script so to speak, the libretto changed no, a great deal no, hardly when, at all. when it came to the stage. I'm wondering about the actual staging because figuring out what, the, what would actually be happening on stage is so key to that show that how did Hal Prince well. work with the company and obviously with Andrew and Tim to realize the show physically? Well, you know, Hal Prince, the great Hal Prince, has that wonderful ability. He has a vision. And as you rightly say, he realized that the album was complete. Uh, there was hardly anything, I think, that was uh, changed, really, very much from the album at all. And I think that um, you would have to ask him about this himself, Really, but it seemed to me that he, from day one of the rehearsal, that he and Andrew and Tim would have had many discussions prior to us all gathering together as a company. Um, and I think that the, the, the view had been taken that they were going to treat it. That's what was so magnificent about it. It was so distinctly different from anything else one had seen on the stage in terms of a, a musical. It was really rather more an opera or an operetta than a musical. Uh, how I can remember us uh, with um, in rehearsal, I must have learned about, I don't know, at least 12 different versions of Buenos Aires as a dance number, as a big, brash dance number. And Larry uh, had all these wonderful dance routines. It's Larry Fuller, the Larry Fuller, sorry, the, the choreographer, uh, had concocted wonderful, wonderful routines with lifts and people being thrown about and, you know, uh, Spanish kind of, you know, uh, movements. It was really spectacular. And every time we would present this to Hal through the rehearsal period, he'd, you'd see him look down and shake his head. And in the end, I mean, it really was pared down. That's what this show became. It was, I don't know if you saw the original production, but fundamentally a black box. And the odd chair and table would be brought on and placed down and then the scene would take place. So Hal had the idea to for the for the work itself to just speak for itself. It was uncluttered. There was hardly any set at all. Uh, as I say, there were just bits and pieces of props brought on. Other than the balcony, 
the opening of Act Two with the great speech, Don't Cry For Me, Argentina, fundamentally it was just a black box that we created and let this piece live uh, for itself within just from the performances. And uh, it was magical because when I very first started out at school and realising that I loved to sing, I was doing things like Handel and Handel's Messiah and Mozart and so on with, with my school teacher. She was the woman that, you know, had inspired me and, and taught me about music. And here I was having... Now my moment had arrived, and I was—it was—it was opera, really, mm. and uh, that was the thing that I thought was so exciting, as, as well as, of course, the the subject matter and the music and lyrics. Um, it was so exciting about it because it was treated in a completely and utterly different way by Hal. You describe it as opera, yet it was really. A very small show. There are only, I think, five principal roles and a chorus in Avida. So you've already spoken about the fact that just auditioning and singing Don't Cry For Me Argentina a number of times was tiring. How long did you do the show for? How, and, and what was your stamina through it? Well, you know, this is one of the things that I'm thankful that I've come up through the ranks, if you like, because when you do that, you learn about things, about technique and about stamina and about the, the very things that you need to know about to be able to, to sustain eight shows a week for a lengthy period. Um, in the end, it was decided that I would only sing six shows a week because it was so terribly demanding and it was truly like an opera in terms of having to sing that score because it was a huge score and, and the role of Evita, she's hardly ever off stage at all and no opera singer I've ever met has ever sung more than maybe three performances in a in space of 10 days, let alone every day. Um, so it was difficult, of course, but I was young, you know, and I had, uh, I had learned a technique. Uh, I knew how to take care of my voice, and I uh, basically lived the life of a nun. I didn't do anything <laughs> I, other than sleep and eat and take care of myself and, and pretty much be silent most days. But a nun who had just become a superstar in the West End because for all of your prior work, nothing approached the role and the show. The that's way right. Did. Well, that's the difficulty, you see, that one had to uh, – everybody wanted a piece. I had to – to go to interviews, I had to do photo sessions, I, you know, had to entertain in my dressing room sometimes for an hour <laughs> and longer after the show. Um, you know, there were lots of other demands, of course, other than playing the role. And that was one of the things that I found most difficult uh, of all, really, was I wanted to play the part. I wanted to, to, play, to do the work. But all the peripheral, all the other stuff that goes with it, I have to say, took me a long, long time, probably years, to to learn to adapt and to come to terms with that. But I played the show, actually, for the longest I've ever been in any one uh, piece, and it was uh, 20 months hmm. altogether. Moving on to another blockbuster show, you ended up in Cats by accident. By default, yeah. Not an accident of yours, but I was surprised to find Judy Dench was going to play Grisabella, mm -hmm. and 
severed her Achilles tendon. That's correct. And so how much time did you have? I mean, were they already in rehearsal? A moment in time. Uh, no, again, it, was, it seems to be something to do, you know, like with the same with hair. I, w- I missed out on the entire... I think they rehearsed for something like months, I don't know, eight weeks or something. Everybody's learning how to be cats. Yes, learning how to be cats. They're writing the show as they go along. They're changing things. They're trying out songs and then ditch it and so on. So it was a real creative process. Trevor Nunn, of course course was directing and uh and trevor had been very used to working with the rsc and and the national theater whereby they have months and months of very slow and you know intricate rehearsal periods so he was used to that and somehow had managed to um you know that that was the case with with this musical with cats and i was nothing to do with it i hadn't been asked to to play the the role or, or be in it a, at all on any level and one night i was coming home from a, a dinner party and the the dj on the radio said it's midnight i shall play the rest of Andrew Lloyd webber's new theme from cats after the midnight news and i jumped out of the car because i'd heard the, the first few bars and it did something to me physically it touched me in such a way and i went to run to my door to to go into my house to tape it because in those days we had cassette tapes and this rather bedraggled black thin disgusting poor creature cat was sort of walking toward me and i tried to my mother always said let a black cat pass your pass in front of you it's meant to bring good luck and i had been out of evita now for at least six months and i was beginning to think i was a you know one hit wonder the cat I managed to get it across me. I ran into the house, taped the music, and made a pact with myself that I was going to ring Andrew the next day and say, I have to record it, even though I'm nothing to do with the show. Please let me... I was going to beg, you know, anything. Mm. And, of course, I didn't have to because Cameron rang me and said that Judy had injured herself and they were in trouble because they were about to open... This was like a Thursday, and they were about to open in preview on the Monday. So we had... I had from... Thursday night, after I'd met Andrew and Trevor and discussed it and agreed to do it, I literally had from Thursday night to Monday to learn it. I mean, learn the whole show, to find out what it was all about. I had no idea. I mean, it had been behind locked doors for several weeks. Nobody knew what the show was going to be about. Yet, you say learn the whole show, in contrast to Evita, which was like running a marathon. Right. Cats, the role of Grisabella, you lurk around the fringes but basically, you come in well, late in was, the show, that's and right. then well, blow there was the opening away. number. You know, we were all involved in this rather long—I don't know—could have been a four or five-minute dance routine. The very opening number, and in that, I was meant to be the kitten. Uh, 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 you know that, but but of course, I mean, it sounds like nothing. But when you don't know what the show is about at all, or have any inkling, it was uh, it was quite something to go into. Again, it was, you know, it was like Disney at uh, this Disney S. Um, it was a cross between Disney and, and you know, it, it was just the most extraordinary, uh, innovative show. Here I was again, in, in, in involved in something that was, it had not, the likes of which had never been seen at the time. Now we all kind of think, oh yeah, cats, you know. But then, oh, no, it, was, it, it was huge. It was the must-see show. And the, so the unusual, I mean... Yeah. 
you know so uh and and then trevor had to take time out to to work with me one afternoon which is what he did i think we worked for three hours on on this character who she is what she where she come from what it was all about i mean it was the most extraordinary thing and of course for me the difficulty really was uh, we had 10 days of previews and every single night i would be given a different lyric to sing mm. so um that that's pretty difficult trying to re remember a new lyric every night forgive the pun but uh, <laughs> in the end uh, as i say it was a bit of a feat of memory to remember <laughs> the lyrics on a nightly basis but eventually they uh, interestingly the the first word in the end that we settled on you know was tr it's trevor nunn's lyric that he took from the essence of the idea of uh, T.S. Eliot's poem, Rhapsody on a Windy Night. And the first night is midnight, and that was the time that I heard the DJ say it was mm. the first time I ever heard the, the melody at all. So I think, ooh, there's always a bit, something a bit spooky about that. Hmm. Remarkable. Um, the next show I want to mention would normally seem like a footnote. I don't even know that I'd ever heard about this show, but Abacadabra. Mm -hmm. um, a new musical using the music of ABBA but new lyrics. So That's it correct. wasn't the same idea as Mamma Mia's. No, the now. forerunner I always like to think of it as yeah. now, and probably it was. It, um, it was actually a children's Christmas play. Um, with music, and you're right, it was the music of ABBA. They had allowed all their tunes to be used, uh, and the the play was there. Uh, Mr. Wood, wonderful uh, writer, uh, children's uh, writer, and um, and it was sort of set in the world of computers, which again today hmm. is we've all got a computer, and the world of the internet is is there for us all. But then I can't remember what year this was. It's um, gosh, that was eighty eighty three. Okay, so there you go, nineteen eighty three. Um, again, you know, a new idea, and uh, and all the music of ABBA was there, and Don Black rewrote all the lyrics to fit the story of the play and the characters so i always and it was really if you look back now it was the it was the forerunner to what we now know as, as ju jukebox musicals and mamma mia particularly but we should say that obviously you've worked with tim rice this was your introduction to performing bjorn and benny's music um which had to have led us to chess well that was the extraordinary thing that uh you know, two or three years later, mid-80s, um, Les Miserables was uh, about to be played in, in London and uh, and I was had committed to doing chess so I couldn't do Les Miserables. What a shame, I couldn't be in two places at once. Mm. But uh, yes, I mean, Tim came up with this original idea of chess uh, as a musical and had approached Benny and Bjorn to, to do the music, not something that they were known to do. They, we all knew them as uh, wonderful pop writers. Um, but of course, immediately I heard uh, the demo recordings of, of the things that um, Benny was playing around with uh, melodically. I was hooked. And one of them was called When the Waves Roll Out to Sea. That was the working title. In fact, amazingly, it never made it uh, into the original production or the original album. Um, but it is the most wonderful operatic, again, melody. And that was the other thing that I think... Um, 
caught my attention and I knew that I wanted to be part of it uh, was a bit like with um, Superstar and Evita before. Uh, the melodies were grand, on a grand scale. They are operatic. And... Uh, and that's what I'm always drawn to, it seems to me. And, of course, to have been involved in something that, um, in a way, was kind of uh, reflecting my own life at the time mm. in terms of the story. Um, you know, it was a weird experience, but uh, but something that I, I couldn't not have done because... Uh, the, the music, the score, I think, is still, for me, and I know I'm biased, of course, but uh, for me, I still think that is one, if not the best score of the entire 1980s to come out of musical theatre. Hmm. What's interesting about chess is that people adore the score. Um, the show, when it got done in the U.S., was ultimately not commercially successful. Well, it had been tampered with. <laughs> well, th- my question Dare is, I say. did it ne- – and people continue to tamper with yes, it. Yes. I mean, there's a production now in Virginia that's even yet revised again, granted in a much smaller venue. Did chess need to be fixed? I do think that the, um, the book of uh, chess became convoluted. It became complicated. But the, the situation surrounding – the birth of the show of chess was complicated. Uh, Michael Bennett was to have um, been involved uh, as director and he had certain ideas about what he was going to do with it and his subsequent uh, withdrawal from the production at such a late stage threw the production into turmoil. Uh, the theatre was booked, you know, the... the Producers had all the money raised. And, uh, I mean, the, the the bandwagon of the show being put on was the roll. You know, the wheels were rolling. You had to kind of go with it. It was probably too late to to draw a halt. So there were many um, complications involved at the beginning. And um, and Trevor Nunn came on board and uh, started to you know uh, make suggestions in terms of. Uh, the storytelling. I think, you see, from the album, the uh, it was never a complete story, really. Tim hadn't actually uh, gotten to the essence and, and worked out, ironed out the chinks, as it were, in the story. So when it came to putting it on stage, I think they, he and Trevor thought that that's when they were going to be able to do it. But the rehearsal period for such a huge show... Um, was quite short, only four weeks, and um, and it got muddled while we were working on it in, in mm. rehearsal and never really got ironed out, I think, before we opened, sadly. And I think that's probably why it continues to be tampered with. Um, Trevor, I think, wanted it to be more politically, uh, have more political base to it, and, and I think Tim's idea initially, with the show anyway, was uh, that it was uh, more of a really a romantic story set against the world of chess, but it it changed. Hmm. You know, the balance changed with the, the storytelling and got muddled along the way. Hmm. And of course, now the world has changed. So, in terms of yes, the, the Cold War the doesn't Cold War. exist at all anymore. And indeed, when Trevor was making those changes, more ba- based more uh, with the Cold War situation, East and West, and everything, it, the Cold War was already diminishing it was already changing even then Hmm. now i'm fascinated that we've been talking about rock musicals new musicals you saw anything goes the lincoln center production in the 80s starring patty lupone and said 
I got to do that. Oh, it was wonderful. And you not only played Reno Sweeney in the West End, but you produced the show. What prompted you to say, I need to produce this? Was it to ensure that you got to play the part? You said it. That's absolutely it. Absolutely hit it right on the head. I saw that production here. Wonderful Jerry Zach's production. Patty was wonderful. I loved it. I just thought it was the most fun, uplifting piece of musical theatre comedy, true American musical theatre comedy. And I had never, ever done anything like that. I dipped my toes into it with Sandy Wilson's The Boyfriend and uh, so on, but never really uh, had played anything like that. And I... I loved it so much, I wanted to play Reno Sweeney. And I, the only way I knew that I would be able to guarantee that for myself was to produce. And so I talked to Tim about it and Robert Fox, who was a, is a famous producer in London. And uh, amazingly, they saw the show and said, yep, we think that is... And it was truly a wonderful show. And so lock, stock and barrel, we managed to bring the entire creative American team to London uh, Everybody, except the cast, of course, um, uh, except uh, for Howard McGillan, who was so glorious in, in the role of uh, uh, Billy Crocker. Billy Crocker. I always wanted to call him Bobby, and actually one night I did go on and do that and call him Bobby, and everybody had to call him Bobby throughout the entire <laughs> evening. I got and them. people are flipping through their programs saying, who's this Bobby Who is fellow? this character who's not in the program? Um, but anyway, and yeah, that was the way I, I knew to be able to... Uh, to be involved in it. But, but I will never do it again. I mean, why? wearing both hats, oh my goodness. Tiring beyond, beyond belief. And also, you have fights with yourself all the time. Creatively, you know, I was involved in it uh, as as the the leading character, and I had and I was pals with all the kids in the show, and you know, trying to lead the company. On the other side of the fence, one would go to uh, production meetings and hear them moan on about the cost of another pair of ballet shoes, for somebody or other. And um, so I was continually having fights with the production uh, to try and get some more money out of them to be able to, that her shoes didn't, you know what I mean? So it was this endless, this endless, um, and it was very, very tiring. But so I would never do it again. But it was, what a great learning curve that was, a wonderful, wonderful experience because I, I learned what it was to be on the other side of the fence and to be behind the scenes and, um, and what it takes to put on a show. Let's skip ahead again to... Sunset Boulevard, which you did both in London and here in New York. Um, famously, Patti LuPone played the part originally in London. Glenn Close originated it here in New York. Um, you ended up succeeding Betty Buckley in both cities. Um, you told the story about not wanting to understudy. At this point in your career, why were you willing to replace uh, Andrew had asked me to uh, replace, I think, uh, Patty here, not here, in London. And uh, I had conversations with him about it. And I, at that time, uh, had my set sight to play PF. I, I had um, read the script uh, of uh, that play and uh, 
really was desperate to play it because it was the most wonderful acting role and, of course, all that marvellous uh, music. And you should say, a revival of Piaf, the original production, I think, was around 1980. It was 1978, the same mm. year that I opened in it Vita. Jane Lapater played it at mm. the National Theatre. And uh, it hadn't been done really since and uh and i was looking for something meaty to to you know get my teeth into and uh and since i hadn't been asked to play uh, uh, norma desmond in sunset boulevard i thought well now's the time to to do pf and so i bought the rights to the pam gems play and um had meetings with Peter Hall, Sir Peter Hall, and he said he wanted to direct it. And so we were off and ready and up and running with that. And uh, so when uh, Andrew asked me if I wanted to, to replace, I said, well, actually, I've made the decision and I'm going to be doing PF. So I was already ensconced huh. in that and I had, I had uh, started to record an album of PF music and so on, you know, th- those wonderful French songs. So it was off limits really for me and anyway they hadn't asked me in the first place so i was let's face it feeling a little bruised i i suspect Mm. um so that was that and then a long time later after betty buckley had already come over and taken over the role from patty on the west end stage she fell ill and yet again i received a help phone call from Mm. andrew and about this because Betty was going to have to be in hospital for several weeks over the Christmas period and um, clearly I think Andrew was concerned over that period of time uh, that an understudy would be able to, you know, hold the show together over Christmas and asked me then, which is I had just finished playing PF. So the timing now was right in a way. I hadn't got anything to do. And, and he also he was asking me just to do it for a finite space of time, to play something for six weeks, such a wonderful role. Uh, you know, would have been, I would have been mad not to have played it. I mean, I knew I'd seen it. I was there to, to see the first night, Patti Lapone on the first night, and thought the score and the storytelling, and it was just the, and the set and everything about it. It was the most glorious show, and so faithful to the to the film as well. I mean, you know, and all those wonderful songs with one look, which, of course, I had sung at his wedding to Madeline um, Gurney, his... Uh, third wife um i'd sung at the wedding breakfast that very song of course at the time it wasn't called with one look it was called one small glance or as you would say one small glance but one small glance is not quite easy to sing and so uh, somewhere down the line it got changed to with one look and of course uh, became the wonderful aria that it is that first aria in the in the piece mm. and again it was of op- operatic proportions this music very me and um as I say, I'm waffling now, but he, he, it was a finite space of time. So I thought, you know what? I've got nothing to lose. I know I want to sing this, this wonderful score. And, and I haven't got to be in it for eight shows a week for, from now to, for another year, which psychologically for an actor is quite, that's a big undertaking, you know? Mm. And especially as I had, luckily for me, experienced that uh, before with other great shows, you know, that I've been very fortunate to play. I was less probably now, and I was tired after PF, you know, that nearly killed me playing her. Hmm. Um, so emotional, do you know what I mean? So I was at a period in my life when I was being a little, perhaps a little bit more choosy about uh, spending long periods of time in the theatre. Yeah, but following PF, 
with Norma Desmond is not a walk in the park, no matter how long no, the run you do. No, look at all those do. stairs. <laughs> well, that's true. <laughs> that was my first it's consideration. <laughs> I have to ask, you mentioned Peter Hall. You have subsequently, to having done PF, you did two plays with Peter Hall. And in the, the scale of your career... You haven't done many plays. You did uh, Where There's a Will and you did Misanthrope for the Peter Hall Company. That's right. Um, is there a desire on your part to do dramatic roles yes. or, or non-musical roles? No, there, are, there is very much so. Um, I speak of it quite a lot and have done over the years. Nobody seems to take any notice. Mm. Um, I think, you know, what happens, I, don't, I think it's less so perhaps here in America. But in England, I think what happens is you get kind of put in a little box and... Um, I'm Elaine Page, the singer, the musical theatre artist, and now the broadcaster, the radio. A lot of people only know me for my radio show, mm. the younger generation. So you get kind of pigeonholed a bit, and it seems quite uh, difficult to move away from from musical theatre. But uh, I continue, and I'll get. I'll say it again. <laughs> yes, I would like to do more drama. And in fact, you know, that is where I really always thought I was going to be. I, I oh. always consider myself an actor who sings, not the other way around. Uh, so it would be nice to think that I, I could... Uh, could uh, find something really interesting to do in the theatre as a piece of drama, and I'm looking all the time. Mm. Now, you got to do Drowsy Chaperone mm-hmm. in England, which had originated, well, it really originated up in Canada, then was here on Broadway. Um, I read some comments playing the great dame Beatrice Stockwell and the Drowsy Chaperone. Um, I read some reviews that said Elaine Page is having a good time sending up herself. Well, the part wasn't written for you. It had nothing to do with Elaine Page. Well, there you go. That's what I'm talking about, people pigeonholing you. You know, um, I've played some big roles in musical theatre. Evita, Edith Piaf. I've sung Memory, which is a thumping great ballad and a tragic cat. (laughs) You know, and so on and so forth. I'm known for the big ballad, you know. And I think... um, uh, funnily enough, that was the sort of uh, backstory, if you like, to Beatrice Stockwell in The Drowsy Chaperone. So it seemed to a lot of people uh, that, that that was uh, me sending myself up. Um, it just happens that that was the, the way the part was written. But, of course, you know, the show was a terrible flop in England. Uh, I think the the British press and the British critics and... Uh, you know, not necessarily the British public. Not enough of them came, it is true. But I think it sort of went over their head. They didn't get it. They didn't mm. get it. And and that comment clearly shows they didn't get it. Uh. And you know the other weird thing about... Uh, the Drowsy Chaperone, it's the one show that I'm still asked about on a regular basis as to why it came off so quickly. And you know what? I don't know, because the British audiences, I've never heard British audiences on a nightly basis howl with laughter as they did at the Drowsy Chaperone. I thought it was the most brilliantly clever and witty, witty, funny show. And I, I still, and when people, when people say to me, they, I mean, I get bored with people saying, why did it come off? And you know what? I can't answer them. Isn't that sad? I don't know why it didn't work. It's a shame because it is indeed a funny show. And to hear you say howling with laughter very often on this show when we talk about the difference between English and American audiences, we always hear the English audiences are a bit more reserved. So howls of laughter, it's well, it's a surprise, it's a shame, but it was 
a wonderful production by all accounts well, and, it, and well, a great chance. It was a good production, let's put it that way. No, it was a great production. I mean, a very funny show, but uh, just just one of those things. You never can tell, can you, until, uh, until you put it up there on the stage, whether it's going to work or not. But that's mm. the joy of theatre, isn't it? It's, it's everybody's taste as to whether they like it or they don't like it. Well, as you say, you never can tell, but people have the opportunity to have you tell them more in your book, Memories, which is now out here in the U.S., your DVDs, your CDs, uh, so many opportunities. Elaine Page, thank you for being with us today on Downstage Center. Pleasure. Thank you so much. Our engineer for this Downstage Center program is Chad Bernhardt. Our researcher is Craig Thompson. Our director of web development is Rob Perry. And our producer is Gail Yankosik. Downstage Center is recorded in the CUNY TV radio studio at the City University of New York's Graduate School of Journalism in Manhattan. Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free from americantheaterwing.org. You can follow ATW on Twitter at The Wing and follow me as well on Twitter as H.E. Sherman. You can also declare yourself as one of our fans on Facebook at The American Theatre Wing and be sure to check out our YouTube channel. If you're a regular listener to or viewer of WING programs, please remember that we are a not-for-profit organization and consider giving us financial support to sustain our work. Just visit the website and click on Support ATW. For Downstage Center in the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman. Thanks for listening, and no matter where you live, I hope we'll see you at the theater.